So people talk about being resilient and being agile, but if you look at how companies are organized to create that, they're actually not. Hello everyone and welcome to the podcast, What is Culture? My name is Rocco Longarello and this is episode number three of season five. And you know, I gotta say, I've really enjoyed this season so far. Focusing on resilience, hearing from fellow Tangaroos, spotlighting their stories of overcoming challenges, it's really been inspiring. And I'd also like to say thank you to everyone who's reached out to me to say they've also enjoyed the focus on resilience. Today, we'll step outside of Tango to speak with a special guest, Esther Weinberg, who's a leadership training expert that works with high-level executives to build company cultures based on a foundation of respect, safety, and trust. And as the founder and chief leadership development officer of the Ready Zone, Esther coaches leaders through change with proven systems to reframe, refocus, and realign. The keyword phrase for me here is coaching through change. If you recall, resilience is defined as the ability to recover from or adjust easily to misfortune or change. So although we have been and will continue to discover what makes people and employees resilient, today we'll shift the focus a bit and discuss what makes an organization resilient. And we'll even hear some practical advice for what leaders can do to help create a culture of readiness. Okay, let's get to it. Here's my conversation with the very perceptive and very practical Esther Weinberg. Let's all learn from her. I will say the one thing I discovered early in COVID was that I did not want to be watching the news all the time and on social media all the time. It was really interesting then because then you really have to consider what hobbies that you want to discover that's new for you. So as an example, I, I got a bike. I haven't had a bike since I was a teenager. So that's like a point of glee for me. I get on my bike, I got a helmet, you know? Yes, <laughs> yes. So it's a whole other, it's a whole other thing. So it's interesting what you rediscover even as a, what you loved as a child that now as an adult you can rediscover too. I'm I'm with you in that same way. Anything that kind of reminds me of your childhood because it was just so carefree. There's nothing more carefree, I think, than riding a bike. You know, even just that whole thing, it just feels like you're a, you're a kid. I don't know what it is. Even mm-hmm. when you're an adult and you're riding down a hill and you feel like you're flying, it reminds me of when I was like 10 years old, always. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's it's just so much fun. It's so much fun. The other thing I rediscovered, I will say, is that when I've loved writing through the years, but I haven't really made it a something that I revisit all the time. And during COVID, I had found that I would go on these walks just outside to go on a walk really early in the morning. I like to exercise very, very early, like around 5.36 a.m. And I would get inspired to write. And so I would come back home and I would just write. And I wrote and I promised myself I wouldn't make it something. So as you can imagine, as an entrepreneur, you're thinking, oh, it's got to be, it's a product, it's a book, it's a this, it's a that. And I really made myself say, put myself in line and said, this is writing for you. If it's something that's meaningful, perhaps it could be something, but it was, it's been a really wonderful create another creative outlet. That's been great. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, and that that's funny. I'm like thinking how similar we are because I I went to school for creative writing. I have a master's in poetry, oh. and yeah, and I <laughs> when I was in grad school, I, you know, I was doing art as well, and I was riding my bike around campus, and that's I was funny. going going for walks and writing stuff. I'm you know you carry a, a book around because you have to like look the part too of the poet. You know oh. what I mean? Like <laughs> you have like a a pocket watch and a, a, a trendy hat and like a little notebook in your pocket. Um, but yeah, totally. Yeah. I, um, I love it. I think I, it's so healthy to hear that the habits that you're, and it makes me kind of feel like I should get back on that horse where you're finding the opportunity, the, uh, the time, the free time that we have to pick up healthy habits and creative outlets. And, um, I, you know, I've been using the excuse that I'm a new dad and I have a year and a half year old daughter that oh, that's beautiful. been consuming my, my life, but, um, it's all excuses. I mean, you no, could find time. No, it is. I, I mean, I don't have to spend an hour or two a night watching Netflix, you know, that's a good point. That's a good point. Yeah. That's what it is. So, Okay, really cool. So basically, you're just like me. That's the gist of it. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're from New York, aren't you? You're from the yeah, Bronx, is I, that right? I, well, I'm originally from Brooklyn, so yes. And Brooklyn. Okay. what's funny, to tell you a poetry story, which was really funny, years and years and years ago, I'd never written poetry in my life. Years and years and years ago, I was at a, this was before I was married, I want to be clear, I was at a speed dating event. I know it's going to be a very strange story. I was at a speed dating event, and I got up to get a drink and I just felt like I had to write something. You know, you could tell like I've got this thing about something they just come to me. And so I took the flyer from the speed dating event and I asked the bartender for a pen because I didn't have one. And I started writing some, whatever, what was there for me. Anyway, I finished writing it and I read it. And I thought, this sounds like a poem. This is so weird. I've never written poetry in my life. And so what happened for two years afterwards, I was like a mad scientist with poetry. So in fact, it came out and I had never had this happen to me where it was literally channeled. You know, when people say that they get that level of inspiration. Mm -hmm. So it was coming so furiously. I took the art off my walls and put butcher block paper up because in the middle of the night I would get woken up and poetry was just pouring out of me and I wrote all over the walls. Like a kid, I wrote all over the walls, and then of course I had to, I had to transcribe them back into my laptop. But I wrote and wrote and wrote and wrote and wrote, and after about two and a half years, it went away. You you know that's so amazing because first of all, that's a great story that I never heard of anybody sharing that. And when I was getting my MFA in Ohio for creative writing, that idea to put butcher paper up as wallpaper. Uh -huh. what people would have been all over that that is such a great I, I can't believe I never heard that because that that's what you do and that's what you're you know when you're in that environment and you're it's like you said it you you're waiting for the muse you're waiting for it to come to you and it, it's, it strikes when it strikes and you can't, <laughs> and you can't control the creativity and it's all this all this so like cheesy crazy stuff with that poets are but it's the truth and mm -hmm. Esther when you said you did that and then it disappeared for two years I, that's kind of how I feel like I haven't written anything really in about five years give or take and it's because mm 
I it hasn't come to me like that. Mm -hmm. And and to me, to sit there, open up a notebook and be like, I'm gonna write today. Like that doesn't compute. That doesn't make sense. Yeah, I, I completely get it. I completely get it. It makes sense because you've also had the experience of it being the other way. So now it feels like a chore. And the last thing you want it to be is a chore since mm -hmm. you love it. Yeah. And when you're in that mindset where you're kind of open to it and you're like, you know, letting letting it just come when it does. That's when you really hit on things that are pretty incredible. And I hope you save that. I hope you have it somewhere. Because oh, I have it all. I have it all. In fact, one of the poems was published in a book. So I have all of it, too. Yeah, I have all of it. Yeah. All right. We're fellow poets. I, I, I just hope you're not a, a Yankee fan because that would be bad. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I, I'm a Mets fan, so I really don't care either way. Okay, we won't go into sports. That's a whole other story. <laughs> but you are. I'm. I'm. I. You would have to be a baseball fan with all the other things that we have in common. I would think you. You're. You're a baseball fan. I'm assuming. But you know, I. Um. I think when I left New York, because it's very polarizing in New York. You know, you're, oh my gosh. You know, you're a Mets fan, and you're very devoted, and you don't cross. <laughs> so I. I was. A Mets fan for a while, then I was a Yankees fan, and then when I left, I was like, okay, I can't choose sides. But and every time I get in conversations with my New York friends, it can be very polarizing. So I try to stay out of it. <laughs> I totally get it. I get it. Have you been back to New York recently? Because you're in LA right now, right? Yeah, we. I have family in New York, and so I go back. I mean, this is really rare since COVID that we have not been in New York. We were in New York earlier in the year and normally we're back in New York about five times a year, if not six. And so it's strange not to be in, in the city or in Jersey. So it's strange, strange. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I hope it, I hope things get better sooner rather than later. Cause it's just, it's getting out of hand and people are like, all right, enough of this. And we're, we're kind of back to square one in a lot of ways, right? I mean, this, I don't want to get into all that stuff, but it, it does seem like we were making progress, especially on the East Coast, and now it's just like, here we go again, and that's disheartening to say the least. Well, there's kind of, so there's, we could talk about the COVID thing for a long time, about the politics of it, which we won't get into, but I do believe that there's, from a work perspective, I think that it was the way that people had been working in, from what I had seen, especially in the last two years, we couldn't continue working this way, the level of stress and anxiety. Not saying that we're not stressed and anxious now, it's different clearly, but the kinds of conversations people are having now and the kind of mindfulness that people are having now about the virtual work environment, I think that that has been, we're never gonna go back. We're not gonna go back to the way, at least I don't think that we're gonna go back to the way it was, especially because we can't, because we lots of people are not even physically going back to a workspace that I know until 2021. So I do really, I do really, the I have an intention and my hope for everyone is that we do find new ways forward in this. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think, I, I think I'd have to agree that just the corporate culture or the work ethic before COVID-19, it, it wasn't, sustainable and i think that the pandemic in a lot of ways put a spotlight on that and it was something that for that kind of culture is difficult to maintain especially right now when there's this big blur between work life and home life and it's just a lot of us are not finding it possible to be 100 percent consumed 
by our job. And that's kind of been the culture for a lot of organizations where your life is your job, period, the end. And I'm all, I'm okay with the fact that that is kind of hopefully going to go away because it's not healthy. Yeah, I would agree with you. I mean, what I was seeing before COVID, if for example, there was someone that I was having a conversation with, we were actually having an executive coaching session and it was late in the afternoon and he looked green, literally. And I said, are you okay? And he said, oh, you know, I was in the hospital. You know, just like he was talking about the weather. I was in the hospital last night and I thought, Wait, what? You, you mean your hospital last night? Yeah, I was in the hospital last night. I had kidney stones. <laughs> I said to him, so why are you here? He said, well, you know, they released me. I said, okay, again, why are you here? And he said, well, I have a meeting, a very important meeting that's happening in another hour and a half. Now, I don't, I didn't dispute with him the level of importance of this, but then there's his health. So I said, okay, well, let's play this out for a second. If they would have left you in the hospital last night, they would have said you had to stay two nights. Who, what would you have done? And he said, oh, I would have sent my vice president. She would have gone. So I said, well, that's a great idea. So how about going home? And he said, I literally can't go home. The stress of work is so unrelenting. I have to be there. So now, of course, that's a whole other, I mean, that opens up five more conversations, but that stress is not, it is not rare. There was a woman who was sharing in an offsite, a leadership offsite that she's, had to hire a nanny on the weekends just to get through her email. So that kind of pace and the way we create boundaries around ourselves is not sustainable. And especially what's interesting about COVID is people keep saying, well, we've never lived through this kind of change before. And this change is surreal. And I would agree. We haven't lived through a pandemic of this scale in our lifetimes. Yet the truth of the matter is, change has been and is the way forward the way that we've been existing for a long 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 time and so how are we actually now creating cultures and developing people so that they can go through that with so much greater ease and there's not that relenting pain of the stress of it now some of it i, I i'm not minimizing the stress of the pandemic that is i'm not a therapist i'm not a psychologist i'm just talking about the impact of stress on the workforce on change on what change will bring about and so people talk about being resilient and being agile but if you look at how companies are organized to create that they're actually not so that is my hope and intention now is that i mean that's one of the reasons why we created a system called the ready zone because <laughs> We know that workplace cultures, when they're most successful, they are because they have workplace cultures where trust, respect, and safety are not only valued, but they're as measured as the bottom line, because that creates the kind of environment that you and I are talking about. Mm -hmm. Well, and it's funny that you mentioned resilience, you know, and that, that's been a focus for the podcast specifically for season five, and a lot of it because like we're saying all the things that were triggered by COVID-19 it kind of it was almost this opportunity now to reassess not only yourself personally but as a business okay well how are we going to come out of this stronger than mm -hmm. before right and so and I saw in in your your ebook 
why your company's bottom line is not your top priority. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned and you mentioned this idea of creating a culture of readiness. Mm-hmm. And to me, that was kind of synonymous with resilience, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So I'm just curious because I I've brought a lot of people on this show in the past few weeks talk about personal. Uh, challenges, personal stories of resilience. But I'm curious, I wanted to hear, how would you describe an organization that is resilient? I would say that there's there's several ways to dismantle the answer to your question. So when I was talking before about this concept of the ready zone, we actually created six what we call zone performance indicators. They're our KPIs for creating this kind of culture because I really do believe that resilience to your to like what you're talking about is a really great word, but more difficult to put into practice. And I and I'm going to give you an example because I think that creating those moments for people is really clear. So, for example, one thing we do talk about quite a bit in the Ready Zone is this concept. One of our zones is called Pivot Ready, and we talk about Pivot Ready because it is how it's how you can actually be resilient, but how do you actually do that? So we have this formula that we talk about, about creating what we call pivot moments. And the, and it's like a, it's like an equation. So if you think about it, your emotions alongside your experience, alongside the actions you're taking, create pivot moments. So let's think of something that's really small and innocuous. Let's say you want to save money. And the way that you, well, actually, no, no, I'm going to give you actually a practical story of the client of mine. So I had this coaching client and she, uh, we were in our first session and the next logical step is that we were going to have a conversation with her boss just so we get on the same page about what we want to achieve and, you know, it's fairly standard stuff. So I said to her, okay, so let's, she's a senior vice president and this is more of a hierarchical organization and she wanted to elevate. And one thing that she wanted to work on was being less direct and more collaborative and more empathetic. So uh, I said to her, okay, so let's, we're going to schedule time with your boss. So it's very LA, my assistant, we'll talk to your assistant. We'll get that going on. <laughs> and, uh, and she says to me, no, 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 don't do that why don't you just coordinate everything through me? And I thought that was really interesting since this woman has like 60 people reporting to her, something around that area. So I thought that's really strange. You can be caught up in like this 10 a.m. work, 10, 15, 10, 30, just seemed really small. So when I asked her more about it and she said, well, you know, my assistant is not very effective. I thought, okay, my, she's not very effective. She's, she's really, she's not right for the job. So I said, okay, well, all right. So, all right. Now, so this is interesting because I said to her, as we dug in deep, and we're talking about this equation, right? Your emotions plus your experience plus your actions, right? So I said to her, we're talking about how she feels about her assistant. She said, you know, I'm really frustrated and angry about the situation. I I feel really actually kind of sad about it. And when we talked about it more, because we asked her why, she said, well, what's your experience like? She said, every day I come into work, she's there before me. And she's always on the computer. And I'm like, well, the computer is what we used to be, <laughs> or her phone. And she said, well, I know she's on social media. I know she's on Instagram. And I said, okay, well, do you really know that? I know. I, well, how do you know that? I, I just, it's a feeling. Oh, okay, got it. Okay, so it's a feeling. 
And she said, and practically though, I have given her lots of different assignments with deadlines, but she keeps missing them. That was also something I thought was pretty interesting that she's giving her deadlines that she keeps that she keeps missing. What I thought was also further interesting is when I said to her, what actions was she taking in order to change the situation with her assistant? She laughed and she said, you know, I'm talking to my husband a lot about it at night. I thought, okay. She goes, you know, I'm kind of complaining about it. And she said, well, you know, I'm not really doing anything other than that. So when I asked her how long it was going on, guess how long she it's actually was going on for? I, I hopefully just a, a few weeks, <laughs> I hope. Two years. Two years. Wow. Now, here's the distinction. She never did much about it. She tolerated the behavior until it was intolerable. So the pain of it being intolerable became a place for her to pivot when we talked about it. But if we look at this concept of pivot moments, what does it really mean? Was she examining where she wasn't effective? Was she admitting her part? And were there other opportunities to make that shift earlier? Did she have to wait until she had got to a place of intolerance to do it? So if you think about it, how often are we looking at our work and how we approach our work as a place to shift? And an effective leader first looks at, at yourself first, take responsibility for where you can be the cause in the matter to make adjustments. So it's really, so if you go back to her intention, what was really her intention? If it was to be more um, collaborative and compassionate, she could still do that in a place of making sure that this woman got, maybe she was not the right job for her, but maybe it was, maybe there is a different place where she could go, or maybe she had to exit her out of the organization. So the reason why I bring it up as resilience is because resilience starts in these kind of moments. I become resilient in how I create change. She wasn't resilient about the change. She just kept tolerating, tolerating, tolerating. That's not resilience. That's avoidance. That's right. If you can look at things, I find that when we look at the totality of things, it becomes very overwhelming. But if you look at the actual, like if anyone's just thinking like, what's my takeaway from this? The one thing to take away is that it's in these moments. How do I shift in the moment? If you, if you can say to yourself almost like as a diagnostic tool, what are my emotions? What is my experience and what actions I'm taking and how are they adding up or not? Most times they're not. So then when they're not, you could say, okay, then what do I need to start doing and stop doing in order to create a different reality? And we did it when we did it with her, within two weeks, her assistant was gone. And two weeks after that, she had a new assistant in place. Mm. So that's when you talk about resilience, I want to make sure we talk about it on a very micro level than a macro level, because people are going to want to know how do I do it? How do I actually create that resilience? And I think this is a tool that you can use in any time, in any situation, personal or professionally, frankly. Yeah, well, I think a lot of it, though, being resilient is, is it's in an emotional kind of response where it's either do something that I know is right for me or kind of shy away and, and hide from the problem, right? Because that's that's what it sounds like in the story that you you shared. It's this this fear of confrontation, this fear of knowing that a change needs to be made, but I'm not ready for it. And so it seems like resilience could be an exercise in in your own personal and emotional strength to 
make the change or make the pivot that you need to do. And I think, I wonder if she would have ever gone there without kind of you shedding the light on it. And I think maybe that's also another important piece of being resilient is having somebody shine that light on it for you. Because a lot of times we could be stuck in this mindset. And I mean, that's been going on for two years, having somebody, you know, drop the ball for two years. And it's basically because you don't have the courage to do what needs to be done. And <laughs> going to that great, le- great of a length to avoid change is pretty uh, interesting. Well, think of it. How often do people tolerate situations that are really not working for you? And I think what happens is we make a mistake in a couple of ways. Number one, and Susan David and Mark Brackett talk a lot about this, and I love this. Susan David talks about emotional agility. Uh, Mark Brackett also has uh, his version. He has a book out called Permission to Feel that talks a lot about this, is the emotional resilience. Because I think what happens is that we forget that we are actually in the emotional management business. The moment you decide to manage people, you are in the emotional management business. Because what happens is, it's it's interesting, Dr. Richard Boyatzis actually talks about this in his work. He talks about the sympathetic nervous system and the parasympathetic nervous system on our stress levels. So when you need to survive, today as people are experiencing more stress and negativity, they're really looking to thrive more than survive, of course, right? Mm But here's the situation he talks about, because negative emotions are so much more powerful, you need to oversample the positive. But when we get stressed, as in this situation with her, that's when we get into fear, we see problems, we see pessimism, we see weakness, and it actually weakens our immune system. Mm-hmm. And you clearly cannot be in the state all the time, so your body counteracts it with your parasympathetic nervous system. That's in a state when you're more positive, you're open to possibilities, you're optimistic. And so what helps you get in that positive state of mind? You, it could be like what you're talking about, having someone external that you can engage in that conversation. It could be physical exercise, meditation, feeling grateful, helping others. Things like that give you another way to move out. What we talk about a lot in the ready zone is we say that if someone is in the process of discovering what their legacy is, what their why is, we talk about in terms of legacy, then that becomes a context that they can live into. And it's really interesting because then you can have legacy moments, these moments of if if I'm talking to this woman about what her legacy is, It is absolutely a disconnect from the way she's being in this moment with her assistant. And so the moment you can connect people to that, then they can move and it changes everything. Every time people think of legacy in the sense of by the time I die, I want to accomplish these things in my life and and my work. I want to get my name on a building and it's only reserved for that. But the fact is we're living our legacy every single day, whether we realize it or not. And so the way we leave people feeling when they leave us, that is our legacy. So if we're more aware of our impact and more conscious about how we want to leave people feeling, and if we're consistently acting in a way that exemplifies our ideas, we would further be living our legacy and that gets us out of fear. That is one of the ways to get us out of fear because look, if you were able to sit down and write down 
Where have I had an impact? What have I noticed that others appreciate me? What am I most proud of? Here's where I want to have a greater impact. In order to have that kind of impact, what would I need to let go of? What do I really want to be known for? And from there, actually get the context. Then when you're moving through any situation and it's not working well, so in our work of the Ready Zone, our legacy is around creating human dignity. And so if we're not doing it, we can go back and say, okay, wait a minute, where was I off? Where did I not do that? Oh, I was really snippy with them. Ooh, why was I short with them? Ooh, I got triggered. Why was I really triggered? Oh, because they said something that really made me feel um, insecure or lack of self-confidence. Oh, okay, now I know what to change. But unless you have that container, it's very tough to shift because it becomes a context for everything. And it's interesting because if people have that individually, they can also create a legacy for their team and they can do the same for their organization. You have to be very awake and in tune and create moments. The one thing I would say to people is you have to create moments in your day and your week that you're evaluating. Like I write the answer to four questions every day. What am I grateful for? What am I learning today? What am I committed to? And who am I being in the face of? And it changes everything. So I feel like you would have good advice here. And so the people, the majority of the people that listen to this podcast are Tango employees, and we've been working from home for four months. Mm-hmm. And that that's, a, it feels like 18 years, but it's only been, it's, <laughs> I was talking to people this morning and I'm like, do you believe it's only been four months? And they're like, come on, no. But it's yeah, it, it does feel like a lot longer. So I'm, I'm wondering if, how do leaders create a motivational environment when so many of us are working from home and we're often consumed with our own personal struggles or our own worry, our own anxiety, and what kinds of things can leaders do to create a more motivated environment? It would be an amazing exercise if leaders could help facilitate the conversation we were talking about today about helping people realize what their legacy is because it helps create purpose and people really want purpose and meaning right now. Second thing I would say is to ask people genuinely how they are doing and to set aside time to show, to demonstrate empathy and compassion because people really do need it. The third thing I would say as a team leader, after you create, help people create that, that point of legacy, it would be really incredible to create a what is your team commitment? Meaning, what is the team committed to achieving together? What is your team why? Why are you why are you together? Why are you doing what you're doing? And most often teams are thrown together with kind of like this get it done. And uh, yeah. more often than not, the it doesn't come with a clear instruction manual or expectations. <laughs> and so, so that means that could be more confusion and wasted time. And if we're not seeing people and body and we're not in same rooms with people, I think it can even be more misread. So I think even being in a place where you're saying, okay, well, engaging in the conversation or why are we here together as a team? What are we working to achieve? What do we want to make sure that our glue is that holds us together more than just the fact that we work for Tango? Because even though that's a good explanation, that's not really the kind of purpose that's going to be meaningful when people get afraid. So that's our show. And another episode that really got me thinking about company culture 
and about the continuing effects of COVID-19, and of course, about resilience. And you know, a lot of times when we think about being resilient, we think of overcoming these giant hurdles or tragedies or significant challenges. And that's often the case, but sometimes too, it's within the small moments where there's an opportunity to pivot. Thank you, Esther, for coming on the podcast and for providing that outside perspective about what leaders and employees can do to help nurture a culture of readiness. It was so great to learn about you, and I really appreciate that you offered all of us some helpful and practical tips. So to learn more about Esther and to download a free copy of her ebook, Why Your Company's Bottom Line is Not Your Top Priority, please head over to the associated blog for this episode, which as always can be found at whatisculturepodcast.com. And there, you can also find some additional information about three authors that Esther also mentioned in this episode, and that was Susan David, Mark Brackett, and Richard Boyatzis. That is all. Thank you, everyone, for listening, and thank you again, Esther. Until next time.